The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Nisha Venkatesh. Nisha stumbled into aviation entirely by accident. Despite having a grandfather who was in the Indian Air Force, a father who built a career in aerospace manufacturing, and her love for globetrotting. As she was evaluating her options for university, she happened into an RCAF offer to pursue a fully funded degree in industrial engineering from the University of Toronto. After graduating and some additional training, She was sent to the heart of Canada and the RCAF in Winnipeg, where her tropical genes tried to be friends with prairie winters for six years. The Air Force helped by sending Nisha off to sunny locations like Hawaii, California, and Florida, before shipping her off to Europe for a six-month NATO deployment. Nisha spent four years in Colorado working for NORAD, where the weather was far friendlier. Last summer, she found her way to Ottawa as a staff officer for RCAF readiness, where she is fortunate and grateful to work for people who encourage her to push boundaries for good. Nisha attended her first CWIA conference in 2017 and joined the volunteer team. She was the program director in 2019 and loved the friends she made along the way. As current CWIA co-chair, she is excited to see you all in Edmonton at the upcoming conference from June 22nd to 25th. I truly could not be more excited to have her join me today. Welcome, Nisha. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for inviting me to talk to you on this podcast. Yeah, no, I remember meeting you initially at sort of the CWA conference in 2019 and just thinking, man, this woman seems so cool. I can't wait to see where she goes. So I'm truly so excited that you've made the time to be here today. Oh, thank you. That's super flattering. I certainly did not think of myself at cool, as cool at the 2019 conference. So appreciate the compliment. Well, we'll jump right on in then because we have so much to talk about. How did you get your start in aviation? Well, I joined the Air Force, and that was kind of by chance, I would say. Um, When I was in high school, I was looking at, you know, various ways that I could pay my way through college. Um, I was really fortunate to come from a fairly financially privileged family, so my parents had had that taken care of, but I wanted to see if I could do it on my own. And my grades were just under the competitive scholarship cutoff rate, and so I went as moral support to a couple of scholarship meetings with a couple of my friends and my guidance counselor started talking about the ROTP program with the Canadian Armed Forces. And so being curious, I started digging into what that was. And I had a really specific idea of what degree I wanted to do in college. And so this Air Force trade of communications and electronics engineering was one of the very few trade options open to me to join the forces with my particular degree. And that's kind of how I stumbled into the Air Force. And then once you're in the Air Force, it's really hard not to get into aviation because <laughs> you're right in the thick of it. And so that's kind of how I serendipitously got my start in aviation. Now, I was an air cadet throughout my teenage years. And of course, I feel like as an air cadet, you have a moment with yourself where you wonder, do I want to pursue uh, the Canadian forces? Is that something I can see myself doing? But you, you didn't have that. It was just truly sort of a chance meeting where you heard that it was uh, an option. You know what? In fact, my parents encouraged me to go into air cadets and I was vehemently against it. 
because the entire idea of that militarized, you know, drill following the rules and all of that really doesn't appeal to me to a large extent, even today. Um, it always seemed a little too authoritarian for my teenage sensibilities. And so I think my parents were quite shocked um, when I told them I wanted to join the Air Force and because they had to authorize me to do that because I was 17 at the time. Mm. So I needed my parent or guardian to allow me to join. And, um, and then I found I have a really kind of interesting family connection to it. My mother's father was in the Indian Air Force and my dad worked manufacturing in the aerospace sector. And so in some ways, you know, it's interesting how fate works, but I wasn't very keen on getting into aviation or aerospace. And then somehow I still ended up there. So. It's funny to me because I find that oftentimes with our guests, they either have, and I mean, obviously it's, you either have exposure to it or, or not. It's very black and white there. But it's almost more interesting to me when we have a guest that did not have that exposure, that they didn't go to an air show when they were five with one of their parents. And that was the moment that they knew it's it's those who find aviation sort of by chance to me that I always find that more more interesting than someone who wanted to be an astronaut when they grew up. Yeah. And I mean, through our interactions through CWI, I also find the stories where people's first interaction with aviation wasn't great. And then somehow they still kind of pursued it even though it wasn't that like the magic of flight moment that they had and they still got into an aviation profession. I find those stories really interesting too. Now, what made you choose that particular trade? So um, the, the trade that I belong to is communications and electronics engineering. It's shorthand C-E-L-E, CELE officers. Um, and like I said, I wanted to do a very specific degree. I wanted to go to the University of Toronto and study industrial engineering. And at the time, your trade determined what kind of professions were open to you in the Canadian Armed Forces. And there were only three professions open to me. One of them was the Sealy officer in the Air Force. One of them, and the other two were naval engineering um, positions. And so th those were my options. I put Air Force Sealy as one, and then the two naval engineering um, options as two and three, and I got my first choice. That is how I ended up in communications and electronics. One big part of why I chose the CAF was um, I looked at all of the people who graduated from my program and where they ended up working. Not all of them, but I looked at a sampling and a lot of them ended up in like banking risk management and consulting right out of the gate. And I knew I didn't want to do either of those two things. So I was also looking for career opportunities that would kind of diverge from those options. And the military paid for education and provided that, right? And so at the time when I was 17, I thought, okay, if I don't join the military as a 17 year old, I'm probably not gonna come back and join in my twenties or thirties or forties. And so I kind of just took the plunge and I said, it's only a nine year commitment with school. So what's the worst that could happen? And really all of the best things happen, so. <laughs> no, I, I love that way of looking at it of what's the worst that could happen, but instead of just all the wonderful things, all these, all the joys that you've had through that sort of initial nine-year commitment and then again sort of thinking more broadly yeah there's there are a lot of opportunities within the Canadian forces I think maybe as someone that is an outsider as a civilian I have a very clear idea of okay there's these set jobs but it really I, I have to remind myself that oh if there's an equivalent role in just sort of the civilian world there's probably a version of it within the military as well yeah, and I would say there's a lot of kind of dynamism in terms of what positions you hold as well, right? Because if I look at my career, 
I have worked outside of my traditional occupation for more than half of my career. And I've gotten to do a lot of things that um, I probably wouldn't have gotten to do as these series of experiences in private sector, because you tend to become a specialist or a generalist and you kind of get put on a path, right? And I found that by some luck, I ended up getting to create and um, leverage a lot of opportunities that are unconventional, if you will. And it's been rather a fun journey in terms of kind of looking at it only at a two-year to three-year horizon of what do I want to do next and seeing where I am two to three years from now and then reevaluating what do I want to do next instead of having a 20-year career to, you know, executive management or a specialist trade or something mapped Mm. out for me. I get to kind of discover and allow my options to kind of grow and shape as I do as a person. And I really, really enjoy that about a CAF career. No, I I would say that sounds I mean, like the opportunities are sort of unlimited as opposed to having to sort of think, okay, five-year plan, 10-year plan, if you really want to be, um, I guess, driving yourself nuts, 20-year plan, um, as opposed to just sort of having, okay, I get to do this for two, three years, and then I get to see what next opportunity is available. That sounds uh, much more manageable. Yeah. And I mean, I won't misrepresent it. There's also lots of room for people who like to have the three, five, 10, 20-year plan. Um, it's very easy to get on a track as well. Um, But it also is an organization that allows you the flexibility if you kind of just want to go where the Prairie River takes you, right, and see where you end up, so. Now, presently, you work as a staff officer at Air Readiness within the Canadian Forces. What are some of the duties this role encompasses? You know, that's a really interesting question, because like I had said earlier, I tend to create opportunities for myself outside of the convention. And so I asked my boss. Um, I asked my supervisor, hey, you know, I'm going on this podcast and one of the questions they're asking me is about what my duties are. And he's like, well, you're pretty typically the challenger of conventions and the diversity advocate. So that's how my supervisor sees my role in, um, in my current position as staff officer. But I would say being a staff officer in the strategic headquarters of the Air Force is a lot like working in a corporate setting. Right. So you really have a portfolio of files that you're responsible for. And a lot of it is outreach and networking and making sure that you're keeping the information flowing. Right. One of the things that happens a lot in government is it takes us a while to adopt new technologies and to become digital and these things. And so we rely a lot on human expertise to connect um, the meaningful pieces of information that help all of the planning that happens at the strategic level. And so when I first got there, my predecessor handed over this rather large NATO file to me. And then right around the same time, um, we were starting up this um, effort to kind of transform and recover from the impact of the pandemic. Um, and so I got moved on to that file and the NATO file got given to somebody else. So a lot of times you, you look at it as these folders of work. And so my responsibilities range from, you know, creating correspondence, doing the strategic and creative thinking that requires change to move forward and change to take shape, and then translating that into direction that the commander can give his subordinate commands so that they can actually move out to execute on some of these strategic change initiatives and change plans, right? So it's rather nice. The other thing that happens in the strategic space is you get to collide with a lot of different initiatives that are happening across the CAF, right? It's not so RCAF focused because you have to play in a much broader landscape. 
And I really love to insert myself into meetings that people don't expect the Air Force readiness staff to show up. And it's, I find it delightful because I get to learn things that other people might not know, which makes that entire endeavor of connecting people to the right information um, a lot um, easier. And I would say a lot more unexpectedly interesting because they get connected to things that they might not have even known existed. And so that's a really kind of broad way of talking about what my responsibilities are right now. But I guess as you know, my boss and my um, chain of command tends to rely on me to be the voice of disruption and to kind of bring in that different or alternate perspective that people at the um, table might not be thinking about. And I think that's a massive privilege because a lot of people, especially from my age demographic in an organization like this might not expect to be taken that seriously, especially when they're coming in with a different perspective, let alone be relied upon to be that mm -hmm. person, right? And that your use and your difference of experience is seen as an asset in this landscape of strategic decisions. And there's really an appetite for people to listen to what I have to say. Um, and help take that in and shape the way that they think about the decisions that they need to make. So, Now, your boss also described you as, a, the, as the diversity advocate, and I'm wondering if you can maybe expand on that a little bit more as well. Yeah, so I love a good side project, and um, I have a couple of interests in the military. Um, making it more digital is one of them. Making it more diverse is another one of them, and I think that shows up really well in the work that Iris and I do with CWI as well in that it's we we tend to stop counting after the first woman for instance has achieved something so you don't know who the first south asian woman is or the first east asian woman is or the first black woman is or the first indigenous woman is and so what ends up happening is you tend to get this nar inadvertent narrowing of the lens when people look at diversity and right now with the kind of social climate that's happening um or that has happened after the social awakening that was 2020, there's really an appetite for people to understand where their perspective is limited when it comes to thinking about diversity. And I like to fill that gap because I have considerable privilege, right? I'm a major, so I have the privilege of rank. I have financial privilege from the fact that my family has been generally well off and we've been able to build like generational wealth and things like this. And so in this, in this kind of endeavor of advocacy, it's not as exhausting for me as it might be for somebody else who doesn't have those privileges. And I like to use that energy that my privilege gives me to connect people to lived experiences that are completely invisible. Mm -hmm. And so one way I do that is by really always advocating for diversity. Right. And a lot of times, especially in any kind of corporate setting or government setting, it becomes hard to see okay, in this operational process that we have, what does it matter what gender is or what does it matter what the ethnicity of the person is? And so to be able to break down where the relevance is and explain it to them so that they can see the impact of not taking, you know, a diverse approach to improving our processes and an intersectional approach to it, um, I can really help people understand why it's important. And when you break a certain amount of ground with the why, people take a lot of ownership of educating themselves. And so I think that's what he was getting at is I'm the initial connector to these different perspectives and lived experiences and philosophies. And then it, it encourages people to go and want to fill in the blanks themselves a little bit more. 
right? And so then they're looking with, they have a lot more tools when they're making decisions to make sure they're making decisions that improve the social fabric of the enterprise instead of continue to reinforce the existing systems of strength, or sorry, systems of power. No, and I, I'm just sort of, I'm not taking it back, but I'm just sort of realizing as you're mentioning this, that yeah, I can tell you who the first woman to work in a major airline in Canada was. I can't tell you who the first black woman was. And, and this is my privilege showing that I've never had to think about that, that I just get to think, okay, women are now piloting at the major airline level in Canada. And I can just sort of take it as women as opposed to being, well, no, what is the makeup of these women? <laughs> Who are they? And yeah, just it's it's always interesting to me when I have these moments where someone can politely point out my privilege that I've never had to think about who was the first woman of color to do something. Because as long as, based on who I am, as long as there was a, a woman doing it, likely a white woman, that was enough of an avenue for me to be able to do it as well. I didn't necessarily have to think about the importance of race and who, if someone looked like me, generally, if there was a woman doing something in aviation, who was the first, she looked like me. Yeah, and race and culture, and I would say, especially in the world of aviation professions, financial privilege is a big, mm -hmm. big deal, right? And one of the things that I've noticed personally is a lot of the women of color that I speak to um, in aviation are either immigrants or come from uh, families where their parents were immigrants and they were first gen Canadian because they were born here. And there's a different dynamic when you immigrate, you have a certain amount of financial, not privilege, but you have a certain amount of financial situation mm -hmm. and social mobility, as opposed to if you're a person of color who's part of Canada, right? Like you did not immigrate here. And so when we look at access to opportunities for people from those communities, money is a big determiner of whether they'll come into aviation. And I think that is really a problem worth examining and solving in the long term um, to make aviation more diverse, right? Is to make sure that Canadians have the same opportunities no matter when they came to Canada or Turtle mm -hmm. Island, so. And I'm just even thinking as well, uh, and speaking with one of our other guests, Tanya Yearwood, who is the founder of uh, the Black Aviation Professionals Network. She and I discussed that, I guess, sort of being both little girls, but one of us being a black girl, one of us being a white girl, that I was told I could be anything I wanted as long as I worked hard and put my mind to it. And for her and a lot of other black youth, it's this idea that you need to work in sports or entertainment and that you're other than that, not you don't necessarily feel like you have a lot of opportunities for you. And just even, I guess, having my eyes open to that, that just sort of the culture that I come from is work hard and you can do what you want. That That is even not a universal. I've, I've even over the last two years, really had to sort of recognize, not, I always knew I was very privileged and lucky, but I guess understanding the extent to which I am privileged and lucky has been a very eye-opening and interesting experience over the last two years. And I can say it's eye-opening and interesting because I'm that privileged to use those words. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I love the way Tanya is able to break down a lot of these really difficult and complex notions into something that's understandable to people who don't have those lived experiences. And I'm so proud of her for all of the work that she's done with BAPIN and to see how BAPIN has grown over the last year has just been an absolute joy for me personally so mm -hmm. 
Now I'm jumping back to sort of your role and the different work that you do. What would you say is maybe the most challenging and rewarding aspects of this role? So <laughs> they kind of go hand in hand, right? I'm one of those people where overcoming a challenge or solving a problem creates a disproportionate amount of like reward feeling for me. And so I find that the challenging aspects of my job are oftentimes the most rewarding aspects of my job. Not always true, but for the most part. And so one of the things that I always struggle with in military, which I would say is probably true for all government um, employment is the speed at which things happen, right? And so being as large as Defense Canada is with its, um, you know, being the largest federal employer and all of these things, it the bureaucracy can sometimes make it take years for things to happen. And I find having that patience, especially as a kid who grew up in a very digital world and like, coming up right when things were starting to become instant, having that patience to wait and see the fruits of your labor a little bit down the road has been quite challenging. But at the same time, when you when the change happens or when you realize whatever it is that you want to, even though it might be a few months or years down the line, you have this immense sense of pride in what you've accomplished, right? The fact that you haven't worked on this for a little bit because you had just had to wait for the system it needed to do is almost immaterial in hindsight, right? So I would say that's probably personally one of the most challenging things for me is to have the patience to play the longer game. And when I win at the longer game, it is so rewarding to me because it feels like I've beaten the odds, right? Like enough time has passed that this could have died, but it did not. And I just, yeah. I'm trying to think of a good example that I could articulate, but I can't think of one in my military work right now. But you know, things like when you wanna change a policy to something, it can take a little bit of time for it to get through a review process. But when that policy change happens, it just, and it's published and you get to go see it and you know your part in it, it just feels very rewarding. I would say it sounds a little bit benign, but for somebody who doesn't have an infinite pool of patience, <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's quite a lot of personal growth. It took quite a lot of personal growth to get to a point to like see it in the way that I'm describing it right now. No, and I, I entirely understand and appreciate that. I, I also work for the government right now and yeah, things are, things are slow. It, it, it can be very challenging to see an idea that you have something that you're working on sort of seemingly stall. It, it just, it's moving so slowly. It doesn't look like it's moving at all. And no, it, it the, the satisfaction when it's, when it's done and all the, as you said, all the different opportunities that it could have died along the way, it, it didn't, it was able to sort of see itself through, even if it just took a lot longer than you had hoped. I, I entirely understand that, that level of satisfaction and reward. And I think for me, another layer of that is for me, getting things done with like sheer passion is quite easy right? Because I have the energy flows of a passionate person. Like I'm at peak passion and then I just crash and I have no energy and I'm exhausted all the time, right? Yeah. And so for me, I find that things that take a longer time really test my commitment and my determination in terms of how much I want to see this come to fruition. And so you have to get well past that initial like turbo jet passionate sprint window and 
really still be committed and show up for it whenever you need to in order to see it past the finish line. And I think there's a real amount of personal satisfaction I get in terms of that personal growth every time I have to do that. And when I can be committed to something for longer and longer and longer, right? Because I, I'm a person of very divergent interests. And so for me to kind of bounce from one thing to the next is quite natural. And so I feel it very rewarding on a personal level as well, when I have the commitment and dedication to kind of see something longer term through the finish line. I am also someone, I would not describe myself as being particularly patient. Uh, and no, I'll definitely be sort of thinking back to this conversation now of, yeah, when when passion is not necessarily waning, but when you've got through that initial sort of energy surge of passion and you just have to wait it out, it's that patience is what you really need. So I'm, I'm hearing uh, some things I definitely need to work on as well, because I think we're similar in this way. It's always nice to meet a kindred spirit. Yes, I feel very kindred spirit listening to you describe sort of your work process and your, the, ebbing, the ebbing and flowing of uh, trying to get stuff done and where that passion comes from. That's awesome. Well, we'll stay in touch and we'll be besties a year from now. Sounds good. Now, what importance do you place on mentorship within the Royal Canadian Air Force? So I think mentorship is important everywhere. Um, but I want to talk about it in kind of a different way. So my initial understanding of mentorship was something very different from the value that it brings into my life today, right? I thought mentorship was all about like guidance and you go to a person when you're stuck in a dilemma or stuck in a jam and you need them to be your Yoda in some way, you know, they're on a higher plane of existence, like feeding you wisdom so that you can kind of make it through your journey. That was, I think it sounds dramatic, but that was literally my mental picture of what a good mentorship relationship is like. And what I found is that the best mentorship is when your mentor is your cheerleader, right? And they, you can take anything to them and you want to talk to them about everything because they just hype you up so much. And having that cheer squad effect on your mood and energy is what I find a good mentor really brings to a mentorship relationship. Um, not so much in like, you know, oh, I'm going down a really unrealistic path and they're going to be disingenuous in hyping me up, but just a genuine like understanding of what, you know, gives me my jollies and how they can really like infuse in me the energy that I need to kind of keep pushing forward. And I think that's important in everybody's life. Like everybody needs a good cheerleader like that um, outside of a family setting, you know, not your partner, not your parents, but just someone who's completely third party is not invested in you in that sense of mm -hmm. like having that familial or friendship bond, but still hypes you so much that you have no choice but to believe them. <laughs> right. Um, so that I think is important universally. Another thing that I think is very important, especially in the CAF, um, is sponsorship. And I found recently what a big difference that makes. And sometimes your mentor and your sponsor will be the same person, but oftentimes they won't be, right? Because the people who understand you and who cheerlead you might not have the same kind of network that you need in someone who's sponsoring you to meet your career goals. And mm -hmm. whether your career goals are to like 
climb the ladder and become executive management someday or to kind of get more lateral experience and become a really solid generalist, whatever they are, um, you need to have a sponsor help you create those opportunities, right? So they have a much bigger view of the organization and they create opportunities for you and they advocate for you and your competency to be able to fill certain roles. Um, which I also think is important. So for me, mentorship is very important because it's all about that connection with you, the mentee, where sponsorship is also very important because it's all about your sponsor's connection to the organization, right? And looking out for your best interest. So they both are there to make your experience in an organization better, but they play very different roles. And I would say both are very, very important no matter where you work, including the CAF, but I would say, especially if you belong to a marginalized demographic, like you're a woman, you're a woman of color, you're an ethnic minority, whatever it is, having a good sponsor is very important for you to be able to achieve your ambitions, right? Because a lot of times they connect you to opportunities that you would not even know were important. Um, and you need someone like that looking out for you, right? Because otherwise, your only other option is to take significantly longer to learn how the organization works and make those opportunities for yourself, right? Which takes time and energy that you don't put into developing your skills and competencies to be able to fill those roles once you get there. So there's my kind of long roundabout answer to your question. I hope I answered it. If I didn't, let me know. No, you definitely did. And I mean, mentorship can come about very organically. It can also be in a very um, almost sort of like structured program where you apply and you are assigned to someone and you kind of you hope it works out. Um, is it the same with sponsorship within the forces? It's that's not that's a new idea for me. So the way that I and I'm by no means an expert. I'm still very new to this because for a large part of my career, even though I was encouraged to always get a mentor because of my incorrect mental picture of what the value of mentorship was, I never really pursued it because I have people that I go to for advice, right? And I didn't understand why I need to have another one from within the forces to do that, that I have to go and select from a program. Um, but mentorship is about you as a person picking your mentor based off of how the connection is between you and them. A lot of times sponsorship I find is people selecting you based off of their mm. perception of your potential. Right. Mm. And so both of them require a pretty good interpersonal relationship between the person who is sponsoring and being sponsored or mentoring and being mentor. But it's about who kind of initiates and drives the relationship. I find in my relationship with my mentor, I really drive the relationship in how, how often I reach out, what I choose to share with them, how I choose to cultivate that relationship. And what they bring is that cheerleader effect, that energy, and a certain amount of insight, right? Like you can be a cheerleader who's also a very wise cheerleader. So they'll hype you up and they'll give you a way to improve upon whatever you're thinking about, right? Whereas with sponsorship, I think that happens a lot more invisible to me where people, I won't even realize it's happening until I've seen enough of it to connect the dots, mm -hmm. right? And so there have been a couple of people, especially in the last year, year and a half, who've taken an interest in my potential and they have connected me to opportunities. And it took me a while to realize what they were doing is sponsorship, right? And it's a lot less like I choose you 
And it's a lot more, I'm creating these opportunities for you. Let's take it kind of one step at a time and see where it goes. That's my personal experience with it. I know in some organizations, there's a very um, systemized way of looking at sponsorship where you can apply for a sponsor and it's a lot more deliberate in terms of creating those relationships. But I think a large extent, you can't be a successful sponsor if you don't see the potential in a person, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So it's harder to be assigned to someone to be sponsored, like they have to have some amount of autonomy in picking you because if they don't believe you have the potential, they're not going to necessarily connect you to the right opportunities. Yeah. And I guess like a very uh, dumbed down way of kind of looking at the difference between sponsorship and mentorship is that mentorship is you saying, asking someone, may you help me? Like, can I, may I ask for your help? And sponsorship being more someone else saying, may I help you? May I help do these things for you? Can we work together? So yeah, yeah, it's I guess I yeah see it differently based on sort of who's initiating, who's driving. Um, I guess yeah, that relationship. Okay. So yeah. now I just really want a sponsor. <laughs> and you can have one. Yeah. No, I find sponsorship is a lot about networking. And I would say, you know, I said in the last couple of years, um, some people have taken an interest in me. And it's not because before that I wasn't interesting. It's just before that I didn't network. I mean, that sounds really obnoxious when I put it that way. But um, everybody is interesting and everybody has potential in certain ways. And so everybody is deserving of having a sponsor. Potential isn't always about upward mobility in an organization, right? And so... I think a big part of it is going out and meeting enough people so that the right people can see you and be exposed to your potential and then have the opportunity to take an interest, Mm -hmm. right? And for me, as someone who didn't really understand the hype around networking, um, I didn't really start networking until CWIA really pushed me to go out and network in the Air Force to kind of pull out stories and incorporate the Air Force more into CWIA. And then I really started seeing all of these benefits of like sponsorship and mentorship and things like that, um, because I had a very personal or they had a very personal impact on my life and my career. Right. And so if I had to give advice, I would say get out there and network. Because if you don't go meet people, they have no way of knowing your potential and they have no way of choosing you as a person to sponsor. And I'm just thinking about some of the mentors I have. Uh, There's three people I know who have my absolute dream job. And I'm just sort of trying to slowly stay on their radar enough that maybe one of them will say like, hey, (laughs) do you want to like kind of be my pet project protege? And that would just be (laughs) the dream. (laughs) You know what? You can always ask to be their protege. It's not... It is not too bold to go and ask someone to take an interest in you if you truly believe it'll be a good fit. That is not too bold. I encourage it. Now, we've mentioned CWRA, Canadian Women in Aviation, a few times throughout the episode so far. And I think it's just really a testament to the very active role that you hold within the aviation community outside of the forces and even within it through volunteerism. But what is Canadian Women in Aviation and how did you become affiliated with this organization? Hmm. So I think what CWIA is will have a different definition depending on whom you speak to. And for Iris and I, it really is a community, right? It, we call ourselves a social impact nonprofit community or association because we see ourselves as a group of women, like a rather large group of women now um, that are actively interested in growing our numbers right, and helping other people transition into an aviation career 
we're all rather passionate about how awesome the awesome parts of aviation are. And we want to make the less awesome parts of it more awesome, especially so that women can enter and succeed in these careers and really see themselves working in the sector. And so we see ourselves, we see CWIA, Iris and I see CWIA as a community. How I got involved was in 2017, the Air Force was looking for candidates to go to um, to go to the 2017 conference in Calgary and the aviation workforce shortage really worked out in my favor because nobody from AirOps was available to go from my wing. And so I got bumped up the list to get to attend the conference. And that's kind of how I ended up um, learning about CWI. I had a fantastic experience at that first conference. I volunteered to be their webmaster. I was never once their webmaster since 2017. I've held other positions because I like to create unconventional opportunities for myself. And here I am in 2022 as uh, one of the two chairs of the community. And it feels really weird calling ourselves the chairs of a community. So Iris and I tend to call each other organizing partners or we try to use a different, um, different set of language for um, describing what function we play because as, you can see we treat CWI as far bigger than this conference that happens every couple of years. And we hope part of that continues moving forward because we've discovered that, you know, these different programs that we put on with calls and circles and the symposium and the conference, they really touch different audiences. Not everybody's able to make it out to a conference. They might not be able to afford it. They might not be able to get the time off. And so there's been a real appetite for this form of digital connection. I think especially now post pandemic that people are a lot more comfortable with it. It's a lot more accessible and it's a lot more national, right? You can have people from Halifax and Vancouver and all of the cities in between um, join into the same event and meet each other without ever having to go anywhere because they just have to walk to their computer. And so that's, that's what it is to us. It's a community of awesome. And we're really happy to have had the opportunity to kind of celebrate it in the way that we did. And we're really excited for the next people who are gonna take the helm in June. Yeah, no, I my first experience with CWIA was going to the 2019 conference. And that conference is mentioned so often on our show. People had such a great time. And as I keep saying, if all conferences were like the 2019 conference, people would be fighting to go to conferences. And I think that's sort of what's become of it, that people now, you have to really sign up and it's not necessarily competitive to get to go, but everyone who goes sees that as such a great opportunity. So I had such a great time with the 2019 conference, the networking, the panels that were put on, and just the overall, ener the energy of the conference. I, I left feeling just like I had so much more to do. It was just an entirely... Um, energizing experience. And I, I've been grateful that even throughout the pandemic, the women that I was able to connect with and meet there, we've stayed in touch. And it, it is a testament to sort of, I think really the work that you and Iris have done in keeping that online community going in, in spite of the fact that we didn't necessarily have the in-person conference in 2021 when it would have normally been done. Uh, and I, in the nicest way, I have high hopes for the 2022 uh, conference you guys have done a phenomenal job at keeping that, this community together and connected at a time when connection matters most. So I, I hope 
that it's just everything that you guys want it to be. I, I really hope it's, and I know it's going to be just a, a wonderful time. Well, thank you for, on behalf of all of us, um, for all of the lovely compliments. <laughs> um, it is a lot of work to mm -hmm. put on all of the programming and it's all worth it because of the people who show up and the energy that they bring. And so we're very grateful to have such an engaged community to put on these um, events for. And yeah, we're excited for the 2022 conference. Um, it's it's going to be, it's going to be fun. It's going to be exactly what you expect a CWI conference to be with amazing women bringing the energy, you know, bringing the kindness to like network with people who are their juniors and give them advice and make them feel like they are part of the sisterhood instead of like, you know, you're, you're too new here. Don't talk to me. They don't have that cold vibe. And so I think all of that warmth and that inspiring energy is going to be there in 2022, just like it was in 2019. And we're, we're really excited to get back with this group of women in person. And we know that that means it has to be a smaller component of the community that comes together. But we're so excited because nothing, as much as I love a good digital event because it's so accessible um, and it's a much lower commitment to kind of just log into something, uh, nothing beats the in-person energy of, of the community coming together, right? And I think right now we're all kind of thirsty for that sitting in the same room and, um, you know, having a beverage of choice and sharing stories from the pandemic. And I know there's going to be a ton of great stories, even though the sector really shut down over, um, mm -hmm. over the pandemic. I think there's going to be a lot of beautiful stories that come out of it because we're seeing them already, right? Um, with the way that people have pivoted and what they've done in terms of pursuing education, pursuing entrepreneurship and all of these things, I think it's going to be, it's going to be great. And it's the people who come to the event that are going to make it. No, and you, you touched on an excellent point about CWIA, which is that when you go to even a virtual event, uh, and especially the in-person ones, there's no hierarchy. It's almost exclusively first names. And you can be a junior person. You can be someone newer into the industry and go talk to someone who is the CEO of an organization. And you're just hanging out with your new friend. And it's just, it, it is such a great way to sort of really strip away any... I would say a hierarchy that you can just go and be with people and get to know them on a personal level. I remember at the CWA conference and at the banquet dinner, I got to dance to the song Barbie girl with Dee Bresser and Judy Cameron <laughs> that right. And I mean, I'm not even fully within aviation. It, it just, it's so, it's such a wonderful experience to be a part of. I, I recommend this conference to everyone. And I, I'm trying to see if there's a way I can make it out for, for the 2022 year. Yeah, we certainly hope you can be there because I've seen you at so many of our virtual events. It would be great to great to have you there in person again. Um, yeah, let us know if we can do anything to help you make it happen. Now, as we sort of touched on, so much of the planning for CWI 2022 has been online and you've had all these different virtual events and you've done truly, I think, a phenomenal job at keeping the community virtually connected. It's It's been very nice to see that that framework hasn't fallen apart because the world has been upside down. But really, how did the idea of doing the CWIA circles come about? You're asking me about circles. And so you're really testing my memory, which is probably one of the lowest capacities I have in my brain. But 
what happened was when March 2020 hit and because of how devastating the pandemic was on the sector and on the lives of the people who work in the sector, Iris and I are very careful about how we talk about it because we were both quite fortunate to continue employment for me and for Iris to find employment during that time um, with the government of Alberta. But when March 2020 hit and the entire world kind of took a pause, we were going in a completely different direction with the conference than we are right now. We had a different city in mind. We had different goals. We had different ambitions. And we really had to stop and take stock and say, okay, is there even going to be an event next year because of how much this pandemic is impacting the entire world? And so we gave ourselves a little bit of time to really make the decision because we didn't want to be too hasty in canceling anything or postponing anything. Um, but in that time, every time Iris and I would talk, we really started talking about the needs of the community, right? And how everybody was feeling so isolated and so many people were furloughed. And so they really got to sit in that isolation. And how can we do something to serve members of the community that were feeling so isolated? And so I think the idea, exact idea for Circles came about because I went to a networking event that I thought was really well run. And I thought, hey, if we take the business out of this and sprinkle like a healthy dose of social, this might be a really good format to start bringing people together during the pandemic, especially now that we had decided to push the conference and we knew that we weren't going to see each other in person until at least 2022. And we had not really conceived the symposium yet. We didn't know if it was going to be a half day or if it was going to be four half days or if it was, we had no idea what this virtual conference was going to look like, if it was going to even be a virtual conference. And so we started having these monthly socials and we said, let's try one and see if it's a total flop, it's a total flop. And I want to say in the, to the first one, we had about 30 people show up, which is far more than we expected. And then over the next few, um, circles, we grew our numbers up to almost 50, like we had 80 people registering and almost 50 people showing up. And so we really started to see that there was a thirst for this kind of connection. And so we continued to sustain it. And what we saw was in the summer months when people were able to go outside, the numbers dropped. And then in the cold months, the numbers would rise again. And so we kind of tried to keep it as consistent as we could so that people who weren't were maybe high risk and weren't comfortable going out still had a place to kind of come together and connect. And that's kind of how circles started and took off. And I would say a lot of the online programming that we've done, we kind of were like, let's just throw this out there and see what sticks. And typically it has succeeded um, quite well, again, because the community shows up with energy, right? And that I would say is a really rewarding part of planning for this community is that all of the effort that goes in feels so worth it because people show up with the energy. And we've heard so many great things about circles um, where people have said a lot of the same things that you said about the conference where, you know, they were in a breakout room with someone that they've idolized from afar for so long. And now they're sitting here having conversation with them on a first name basis. Right. And they're almost one on one with this person. And they never in their entire career imagined having access to this person on such an intimate level um, in such a close, like small setting. And so I think translating that feeling of meeting people from CWI in-person events worked really well. 
as we brought about this monthly social. And that's why it kind of stuck around as long as it has. And I was going to say exactly that, that you guys did a really great job at making it not so much that it was just sort of a regular social of, oh, I see the same five faces. I get to see my friend or, oh, I haven't chatted with her in a while. It'll be nice to catch up. But with the use of breakout rooms, which we had no say in, it was truly sort of at the mercy of you and Iris deciding how you were going to break, uh, break people out. You would end up beating someone like, oh, I, I, I had no idea that that role even existed. It was a great way to still network. And it was, I, I mean, planned, planned organic, if that, <laughs> if that makes sense. It was meant to sort of be natural, obviously work with the breakout rooms, I had to go into putting it all together. And I think you guys did such a great job because I was still able to network and meet new people in kind of, yeah, an, an intimate setting. There might only be one other person with you. You're looking into someone's home. You're seeing someone's partner walk in the background or their dog. It, it was very, uh, it really sort of resonated and reminded me of exactly being in person at the conference where you get to just sort of see this person as Laura and Nisha, as opposed to here's all the different things that you do. It was very nice to still have that space being created for us. Well, you know, we're glad that you enjoyed it because you were the reason we do it. We do it for the people who come back and who find a lot of value with things like that. And I think we've, we really found a stride with the younger community, not just the junior community, but especially like young women in their early 20s because they really get to meet each other. Um, and I have to shout out Approaching Finals. Approaching Finals ran a monthly calendar of events last year. And they're for student pilots by student pilots. And they really wanted to create a place for women to come together, women doing pilot training to come together and have kind of a community of solidarity. And they did just that, right? And towards the end of the year, they're like, we should keep this going past the pandemic because we don't get to see this many women in our classrooms, mm -hmm. right? A lot of times it's like one or two ladies in your entire flight school. And so this access to other women going through the same experiences as you are with flight training just created the sisterhood that was quite beautiful at the end of the day. And so they started coming to circles and then they started meeting a lot of people that they could look up to as mentors, right? And sometimes you wouldn't think that the age difference would be that small, but a lot of them were starting to look up to people who were just new graduates, right? Because they're just those few years ahead of you. So they still have that relatable experience of what you're going through and you're aspiring to be like them within a five-year window, right? And so I think a lot of those connections being created and those commonalities really help you build the relationship outside of the breakout room. And so, yeah, we're, I, I'll say this again for probably the 50th time <laughs> in this conversation, but we are extremely grateful for the community that shows up with the amount of energy that they show up with. Because at the end of the day, we, Iris and I, just create the Zoom rooms and the icebreaker questions, right? It is, it is you and the other people in the breakout room that really come to make the event what it is. Absolutely. And I sort of think back to my own time with my very early flight training days. Yeah, having an online network and resource of other women from across Canada who were at different points in their flight training, but still doing it, that would have that would have made a difference to me. It was, uh, I don't regret going the route that I did, but it, I was oftentimes one of three if women, and sometimes I was the only one. And it, it would have been, it would have made a difference to me had I had that resource. So I'm so glad that it's been set up now. 
Yeah. And, and you know how it came about? One of the students reached out to me on LinkedIn and said, I would love to volunteer once I'm done my flight training because I have no time right now. And I was like, why don't you volunteer by creating whatever you need as support mm. in your student journey? And so she got together with one other person at the time, which then grew to a team of four. Right. And I want to say the approaching finals community is probably close to a hundred people right now. So yeah, that's pretty impressive, right? For student pilots coming together and creating a forum for themselves. There's a hundred other women across the country who are part of this community of student pilots. So it's wonderful. Now you've done all these different things and you mentioned that, yes, it's the community. Yes. It's volunteers and it's the energy that it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's invigorating. It, it sort of helps. It's, it's a self-sustaining system because the, you and Iris as organizers, it gives you the energy by seeing how excited people are and it, it, it's self-sustaining. But what are you most proud of from your time as conference organizer leading up to CWIA 2022 so far? What has been the most rewarding moment for you? Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm most proud of and what has been the most rewarding thing are two very different things. Um, I would say the most rewarding thing has been my relationship with Iris. And I will say for any aspiring CWIA chairs out there, pick, pick your partners well, because you spend a lot of time with them. And Iris and I spend anywhere between, you know, on any given week, we spend between eight and 25 hours talking to each other every week. And you really have to like someone to be able to do that so consistently. And I think a lot of the creativity and the energy that comes out of the two of us and the volunteer team has to do with the relationships that the team has, right? So um, the approaching finals team has such a great relationship, which is reflected in the quality of the programming they put out there. Iris and I love doing things a little bit differently from the convention while keeping the kind of heart and soul of what we're trying to accomplish the same. And so you see a lot of new ideas coming out of the two of us and we're very supportive of each other, right? And so the most rewarding thing is like Iris and I started out as, you know, people who would work well together to being really good friends, to being best friends, to being sisters. And it's happened over the last three years. And it's really hard to top that, right? In terms of something rewarding because I'm someone who picks my um, inner circle quite carefully because I know I have only a certain amount of energy to give my relationships and I like to invest in my important relationships a lot and so if we hadn't been working on CWI initiatives together I don't know that we would have kind of our relationship would have evolved in the way that it did. I would say it's hard to find one thing that I'm most proud of in terms of CWI because the symposium was such a success. It's hard not to look at that event itself as an accomplishment that I'm the most proud of. When we first started out organizing this virtual event, what had happened was um, we had a couple of mentorship meetings with other people who were doing virtual events. And the thing that they told us was, you know, no matter how many tickets you sell, make sure that you uh, set your expectations so that only between 10 and 30% of the ticket sale um, holders will actually show up to your event. So the return on investment in terms of like engagement is gonna be significantly lower. 
I want to say we sold probably 320 tickets to the symposium and about 280 of them showed up to more than one day live. And so again, like outstanding amount of engagement. So it doesn't matter that we didn't sell a thousand tickets, you know, even if that was our goal, which it wasn't. Um, But I think sometimes people forget about the quantity of the quality of the engagement as opposed to the quantity of the ticket sales, right? And we, I don't think we've gotten anything less than a five-star review from all of the people who talked to us coming out of the symposium. And one of the things Iris and I wanted to do was make sure that it wasn't a run-of-the-mill experience because everybody was doing a virtual conference. And so we incorporated circles into it and we made sure that there was a social calendar for you to be able to go and network. And we really were a little bit brave in the number and the types of people that we reached out to um, because we were sitting there thinking like CEOs aren't going to want to come and talk to us. And then they said yes. And then we had to personally interview them. So the amount that we each stretched ourselves and then the volunteer team that put together the symposium was so small, but so mighty, right? Like when I tell people the number of people that put together that event, people are shocked because they think that we probably had three times the number of volunteers working on that. And the amount that people, the volunteers stretch themselves to go find speakers, to think about how we can you know, logistically create these experiences that are so different for a virtual space, I think it's really hard not to be so proud of what we accomplished as CWI's first virtual event. On the other hand though, we have done a lot of diversification through outreach. And it, as a diversity advocate, like through my entire life, right? I find it really hard not to be the most proud of that in really increasing the number of women of color who feel at home within CWIA, right? They feel like they can bring their whole selves into the space that we have created together um, as a community where previously they did not feel that way, right? And I've had people tell me like, you know, for years I've been searching for a place where I can kind of bring my, you know, the fact that I'm a woman of color and the fact that I'm a woman and the fact that I'm X, Y, Z trade to the same place, but I haven't been able to because I either have a community that's dedicated to my race or ethnicity and a community that's dedicated to women and a community that's dedicated to my trade. And so for them to come here and feel like this is a place where they can be their whole selves, right? I feel that is something that we are incredibly proud of as well because the amount of energy for the return on investment seems like it's not worth it when you look at it from the outside, but it's so rewarding anytime somebody says that they feel like they belong in a community that you are responsible for the programming for, right? And it, it makes us feel like we are living and leading the planning activities in line with our values, right? And that has also been a really rewarding part of what Iris and I have um, tried to accomplish with, within CWIA. The the virtual symposium was excellent. And I'm speaking on behalf of our producer, Cameron and I here, we were so uh, flattered when we were contacted asking if we wanted to help uh, produce content for the event. And uh, Alison Couch was a wonderful guest and we loved getting to work with her for that. Um, But I think even just as an outsider, as someone that this is, I would say, being done for, it isn't such a joy to see just that the, 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 the diversity, the inclusion, the intersectionality of CWA has 
has changed. I, I had a fabulous time in 2019 and was maybe not aware of how much more work needed to be done. And so getting to now have seen the last few years of the conference in transition as we lead up to 2022, it, it is a completely different makeup. The, the passion, that energy is still there, but uh, knowing how welcome and excited I felt at the last one, understanding now that more women will feel that way upcoming. It, it's just, it, I'm excited to have other people be I guess, as welcomed as I was. And it's, it's rewarding for me as an outsider to know that other people will feel uh, hopefully as excited and just on top of the world, leaving the conference the way that I did. Thank you. That means a lot. The positive feedback always means a lot. <laughs> as you know, of someone who does a lot of work within this space, um, it's lovely when what you're doing resonates with the people that you're trying to bring into the fold, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it's it's been it's been an extremely rewarding and I would say eye-opening and educational journey. And one thing I tell everybody that I meet who wants to get involved with CWIA is, you know, if you can afford the time and the energy, become a volunteer mm -hmm. because you grow as a person in so many different ways. Um, and all of our active volunteers feel that they've mm -hmm. gotten to you know, make their own sisterly bonds the way that Iris and I have. And they've gotten to really, you know, when you do things together, it deepens the relationship you have. You get to learn things that you never thought that you would get to learn. And you get to become proficient at things that you're passionate about, right? Not, not just because you need to polish up your resume, but because you truly care about the cause and you feel this deeper sense of purpose. It is one of the most rewarding ways to participate in the community for sure if you can afford the time and energy. Yes, and I mean, even just outside of CWIA, uh, some of the people I would say that know me best in this world, that get to see me and truly understand me, I have gotten to meet through volunteering experiences. If you have that common passion, it becomes so much easier for those relationships to be strengthened. And yeah, I, I feel so grateful for the relationships that I've made through volunteering within aviation. I'm, there's a, several women in particular I'm thinking of right now, but they, they get to just sort of know me on an inherent level that even close friends of mine outside of aviation don't. It's, uh, it's so rewarding to be bonded with someone through volunteerism. Absolutely. And volunteering always sounds like you have to give so much of yourself. I think what you get out of being a volunteer tends to be a lot more invisible. And you get so much out of being a CWI mm -hmm. volunteer. And I imagine it's quite similar for a lot of the other groups that work in the aviation space, like BAPIN, like Canadian Aviation Pride, like NLAF, like Elevate, like the 99s, right? The sense of community is just so much deeper. You get so much more out of it when you volunteer. But of course, volunteering is something that you shouldn't do as a means of sacrificing a part of yourself, right? That's why I very specifically say, if you have the time and energy, knowing full well that the mental toll that this entire new normal pandemic situation has taken, especially on aviation professionals. No one should feel guilty for not being able to volunteer mm -hmm. because if you come to it feeling guilty, you're not going to get as much out of it as you think you might, right? So it's always good to take care of yourself, make sure your cup is whole and somewhat filled before you come to the community to volunteer. And CWIA has survived 30 years. And it's going to be around. So there's no kind of expiry window, right? If you don't have the time or energy today to be a volunteer, 
come back a couple years later, we're still going to be here, still going to be doing awesome things, still going to be celebrating this amazing community. So now, although things can change, plans can change, lineups and guests can change, what can guests expect from the CWA 2022 conference? Uh, well, I think instead of telling you, here's what we're going to see and hear and do, um, I'll walk you through the experience. We're trying to make the experience as analog as we possibly can, um, using technology only where it absolutely needs to in order to increase safety and like customer experience, if you will. So the community's experience coming to the conference. So we're really trying to find cool ways to make the socials as analog as possible, make the stage even as analog as possible, you know, see if we can remove the need for like, having a PowerPoint, no matter what you're going to talk about, right? Um, really get into, can we do small group discussions and how can we translate these new kind of formats we've discovered online into the physical space um, without doing necessarily a transliteration, right? Like creating that experience of connection, but in the analog space. We're also trying to do, uh, we're trying to balance what you're going to see on stage between the inspiring stories, because we all need them now more than ever, um, and as well as the industry insight. And we're trying to see, okay, where did we pull industry insight from in the symposium and what were kind of the gaps that we need to fill um, to see what new parts of the industry that we can expose, um, expose the audience to. Um, we're trying to bring some of the formats that we came up with in the symposium, like the conversational style keynotes into the main stage of the conference as well. And we're trying to make small changes here and there. So instead of looking at things as tours, we're trying to look at them as experiences and see how we can really craft a whole experience. At the end of the day, what Iris and I want is for the conference to feel like a present that you have survived the pandemic to open, right? Um, we have been waiting for this event for so long, a large part of the community has, and we want you to feel like it is what you wanted it to be, right? An in-person like connection of people on a social level first, and then on a professional networking level. So we really wanna spark friendships and expand your network. We really want you to go back to this like childlike delight in discovering parts of aviation that you might not have discovered, or maybe because of you know the year of social awakening that was 2020 and beyond, we're trying to incorporate a few cultural experiences to see, hey, can we send you on an indigenous experience so that you can learn from the indigenous community um, different aspects of it so that you can broaden your perspective, right? And so we're trying to make the, we're trying to give you as many options as possible to make the event yours. And we're trying to really bring people together on a human level. So that's kind of what you can expect, which is exactly what people got out of 2019. I just think we wanna fill, fill that thirst of an in-person human connection and really humanize the event and let the kind of educational aspects of it take not a back seat per se, but take second priority, right? Still very important, but not the top priority for the event. Now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why? Oh, this one's a hard question because I spent a large part of my life not really looking up to people. 
So, and I know that sounds like a very insolent thing to say, but now because of all of the wonderful people that I've met through CWIA, it's really hard to pick one person. So I'm going to pick a few. <laughs> um, so first and foremost, I met Joanne Tabobandam at the 2019 conference because she had agreed to speak um, as part of a panel and um, as a standalone speaker on the first day. And to say that the few conversations that I've had with Joanne have completely changed the way that I look at the world is not an understatement. I find that she's such a wise and accessible person and she's got such a great sense of humor. And I had the wonderful opportunity to be able to go to the NLAF gala last year and just to hear about how involved she is in her community outside of aviation is so inspiring. And I think that's a common thread for all of the people that I'm going to mention here is that they give to the community so much of themselves to make it better for the people, for the other people within the community. And I think that is something I truly admire is uh, people who are able to do that with a lot of energy and good humor, you know, in a way that they don't get exhausted and lose themselves in the process. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, the second person I would say is Tanya Yearwood. I got to meet her um, because she was recommended to us as a person to have as a guest on CWIA calls. And so I met her in, I want to say 2020, October. And ever since then, Tanya and I have become quite good friends. Um, I rely on her counsel a lot. I really love how grounded she is. I am so impressed with the work that she's done with BAPIN. It's really hard not to admire someone like her who has created this global forum for um, Black professionals in aviation to come together and grow themselves, grow their community, find solidarity in a common experience, um, and has done it all um, in such a short span of time. Like when you see how explosive the growth and impact of BAPIN has been, you can really see how much a community like that was needed. And Tanya's, her humility in the face of success is always something that I will admire. Um, and then the last person is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Diane Baldessero. She was also recognized at NLAF last year, um, I think in the government category. Diane was another person that I met through CWIA calls and she is an Air Force officer. And I think we had a connection right from the start. And I've had the privilege of working with Diane on and off over the last 18 months. And she really, you know, she honed in on my passion for uh, an innovative and digital Air Force right off the start. And uh, she's really given me a lot of opportunities to leverage my strengths to help that cause move along. And so I think she really gets the fact that Nisha always has a side project really well. And I immediately connected with her leadership philosophy and the way that she looks at bringing people together and bringing out the best in a team by kind of aggregating the strengths of the group um, to compensate for the areas of development, right? And so those are three women in aviation that I have met in the last two years, uh, two and a half years, whom I really, really admire. I will put an honorable mention for Stacy Jackson. I haven't had a lot of opportunity to speak to Stacy. Um, Lauren, my partner, was on the Elevate Masterclass with her. And I know that they connected. So I kind of know her by reputation. But recently, 
she got on a call with me and just her passion for making improvements for women in aviation is something that is to be admired and <laughs> hopefully not from a distance for too long. Um, and I know Stacy and I have emailed back and forth quite a bit, but I did not realize how much she contributes to improving the workplace for women in the flight deck with all of her work with Alpa, with her work through her PhD. She's um, very generous in the time that she gives CWIA and the expertise she gives CWIA. So I, I don't know her well enough to admire her quite as much as I do the first three ladies, but I feel if you ask me this question again in eight months that she would definitely be on my list, so. No, and it is hard to choose just one. I think this is uh, the question our guests like the least because it sort of forces <laughs> them to choose. And I keep asking it because I'm curious to know sort of what are the qualities that I guess are important to someone and who who do they look up to? That to me is always interesting, even if everyone hates this question. Um, but how fortunate are you to have all these women actively in your life, even if it's in the case of Stacey, you're hoping to get to know her better. How fortunate are you to have the people that you admire accessible and someone that you can reach out to it's it's oftentimes you might have that person at an arm's length or there's someone that you you know of but I just think that the, uh, I guess what a lovely dynamic to have that not only are you able to look up to these women but you can get a hold of them and they know who you are and you have a relationship there I just think that that's such a, a wonderful gift to to have absolutely I am truly truly fortunate that these women make time for me <laughs> Sometimes I sit up and I wonder, you know, like of all the things you have going on, why do you take my emails? But I'm very grateful to all of them that they do. And I think a lot of us feel that way. You know, we feel like the women that we admire are out of reach. And I'm happy to have worked through whatever I needed to work through to cultivate a relationship with them. And I would definitely encourage other people to do that. If you admire someone and there's a way you can reach out to them on LinkedIn, through an email, anything, reach out to them because chances are they would love to have a conversation with you if they have the space for it. No, and I think you even touched on this earlier in uh, thinking, oh, I don't know if a CEO would want to be part of uh, the CWI virtual symposium. I can attest that through this show, if you think someone is cool, you can reach out to them. They'll probably play ball. They'll probably be interested in who you are and why you're reaching out. It's people are surprisingly accessible. And especially if you come from a place of like sincere admiration and curiosity to know more about them, it's amazing who you can end up being connected with, or even uh, if you're so lucky to be friends with just by reaching out to someone you admire. Absolutely. And I would say, don't take no as rejection. That was the big block I had right? Is, oh my God, what if they say no? If they say no, they say no, right? And that's it. They probably have a million different factors that went into that and it has nothing to do with me. And, you know, that's another version of humility. It takes a lot of uh, working on the ego to get there, but it's definitely, it was a worthwhile journey for me, for sure. Now, what advice would you have for someone considering a career in the Canadian Armed Forces? I don't think this will come as a surprise, but don't say no to yourself. I find a lot of women who have asked me about a career in the military have uh, come up to me and said, oh, you know, I could never do it. Like, I don't have the fitness or I don't have the ability to like follow in like the orders or whatever it is. So don't say no to yourself. If you're truly interested in being in a military career, realize that it's not a 
it's not a lifelong contract or anything like that. It's like any other term of employment. And don't say no to yourself. Give it a try. Um, take a bet on yourself. It is probably something that you would be good at. Um, because the most unexpected skills and perspectives and competencies are highly valued in organizations like the CAF. And so if you think you can't meet the fitness standards, I can guarantee you that you probably can. Um, it just might take you a little bit more work than the person next to you on basic training, right? But at the end of the day, um, being successful in aviation requires a certain amount of grit and determination and perseverance. And it's those same qualities that the military looks for, right? It, this, the same qualities that aviation looks for, the military looks for. They look for creativity, they look for problem solvers, they look for people who are determined, people who are passionate, people who have perseverance. So if you can have a profession in aviation and you can see those qualities in yourself, then you can have a profession in the Canadian Armed Forces because you have those qualities. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career so far? Highlights. So a lot of my career has been kind of the highlight reel. I've been very, very fortunate in that most of the things that I've gotten to experience in the Air Force are just outstanding. Um, I can name a couple. So I've gotten to do a lot of pretty cool travel with the Air Force. I've gotten to go to Hawaii to plan exercises. I've gotten to travel in the Southern States to provide communication supports for fighter operations. Um, but I would say probably the highlight was when I got to deploy, I deployed to Eastern Europe um, in 2014. And I was in Romania and Lithuania working for a couple of NATO missions there. I was there for a total of six months and beautiful, beautiful countries, right? So Romania and Lithuania are both gorgeous. They weren't on my travel list at all, and now they are. Um, being in Romania was a lot like being in Eastern Europe, but also in India simultaneously. Like I would walk down the street and, you know, Romanian grandma was just taking her cow for a jaunt around the block and just being able to immerse myself in some in a culture that was so culturally different from Canada and yet has so much cultural proximity to India, which is still so far away from where Romania is on the map, was so great. You know, getting to tour around and see the, like, I think I saw 12 castles that Dracula lived in, which was great. And I got to see, you know, houses that belong to the Romani people. And in Lithuania, I got very similar cultural experiences. Um, even though the culture of Lithuania might not come across as that old, as old as the Romanian culture to visitors. Um, so it's hard not to think about that as a highlight because we got to do great work, but we also got to kind of do great exploration, right? We got weekends off to go and explore the different cities around the country um, and things like that. So that definitely is a highlight because I can't think of very many jobs where you get paid <laughs> to be exposed to experiences like that. Um, but another one from a job perspective, from a career perspective would be um, from 2018 to 2020, 
2021-ish, 2018 to 2020, I was a speech writer. Um, it was one of the secondary duties I held while I was working down in NORAD. as the speech writer for the deputy commander of NORAD, who's a three-star general responsible for all of us NORAD Canadians, uh, amongst other things. And that was a fascinating experience because not only is speech writing a very different craft from technical or business writing, and I got to develop that part of Nisha the writer, um, but I just got to have so much access to the different kinds of engagements that a three-star um, goes out for. And I got to actively shape messages that a, an RCAS three-star general was giving at the Senate or was giving to a business conference or was giving at a Remembrance Day parade or was giving at uh, air shows. And like just within those four events, you could see how divergent and diverse these events were. And so I really got to understand the strategic decision-making landscape a little better for the first time. And I think that's where I really got hooked into the strategic space in terms of corporate and government decision-making when it comes to policy. And so for me, it sounds far less cool than going to Romania and going to Lithuania and supporting a NATO air mission there. But from a career perspective, I would say that was quite a transformative experience. And I had to do lo lots of it on my own time, but it just felt like it was worth the time that I put into it because I grew again in so many different ways from the, that experience or those experiences of writing, I wanna say probably 60 plus speeches. And then last year I got selected to write one for the commander of the Air Force to deliver at an international conference. And it was really well received because I had the practice of doing it 60 times for a different three-star. And so um, you definitely, when you have these unique skills and you volunteer for things that other people don't think to volunteer for, you open doors to opportunities and access to opportunities that don't exist for everybody. And that's one of the ways that I kind of make, make my own or find my own opportunities um, of what I would want to do two or three years down the line, right? It's a different kind of insider knowledge. And that's exactly what I was going to say. The experiences of getting to be deployed overseas and then also with just the, maybe a more like not as, if we can say sexy um, role of doing speech writing. These both are just a testament to you creating those opportunities for yourself, knowing where to look, but also being willing to take a chance on yourself to do something radically different than what you've done so far and seeing the potential and the different skills that you can you can gain from it. it is, it's, it's truly a testament to always looking for that next way to uh, develop yourself and that next opportunity. Yeah, I, I'm always here for a good development task. <laughs> I feel a little too stagnant when I am not growing in some direction. I start to feel restless. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really, and you know, that's another thing people don't necessarily think about the Air Force as providing these kinds of opportunities, right? But it does you can really have truly if you haven't even thought about the things that you can do in an air force career um even if you have a 10-year career like i have so far right and five years from now i'm going to be doing things and i'm going to look back and say holy moly like early 30s nisha had no clue the opportunities that are available out there <laughs> so now before we wrap up today where can our listeners find you on social media so if you're looking for me on socials, I'm not hugely active on a lot of social media sites right now. I'm the most active on LinkedIn, and you can find me using my name, Nisha Venkatesh. Um, 
If you're looking for CWIA, you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn. We do have an Instagram account as well. The best way to keep in touch is to sign up for our mailing list at www.cwia.ca, which is our website. Um, and you can always contact me directly through my email, which I'll pop into the bio. We will be sure to have all those links in the episode description for our listeners. Nisha Venkatesh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Laura. This was a great chat. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searles. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. Thank you.